Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last Tuesday night, we kicked off season two of our monthly Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And our first guest of the new season was Claudio Calori, the announcer for the World Cup Mountain Bike Downhill Series. Claudio is also a former pro cross-country and downhill racer himself. He's the founder of Velo Solutions and the initiator of Pump for Peace. And so we touched on all of these things in our conversation and get Claudio's perspective on a wide range of topics and questions, including a number of great questions, once again, from the Western audience. And side note here before we get started, you might also catch me calling out Blister reviewer Eric Friesen, who was in attendance, but as you will see, Eric deserved it. With that, let's get to my conversation with Claudio Calori. Very happy to be back. Um, feels like only yesterday we were in this room. Trust you all had a good summer and um, very excited to fire this speaker series up again and very excited about our guest tonight. But before we get to our guest tonight, I want to tell you a little bit about our next speaker series, which I'm very excited about. No offense, Claudio. Um, some of you have probably heard the name Honold. Um, maybe you've heard about the Honold Foundation. And on October 8th, uh, which is a Tuesday, October 8th at 7 p.m., Dory Trimble, who is the executive director of the Honold Foundation, is going to be coming here. If you guys know Dory, she is freaking amazing. And uh, I'm very, very excited to get to introduce you guys to her there's a little movie that came out, some of you may have heard of it, called Free Solo. And basically the short version of the story goes that this has just exploded uh, the Honold Foundation. And she is moving this thing forward uh, in really, really interesting ways. And uh, I'm delighted she's gonna be here. Unfortunately, she's not here tonight. Uh, but, you know, as a consolation prize, we have uh, someone who I'm happy to call a friend and someone who uh, it's been a really interesting uh, development of a relationship with, uh, Claudio Calori. I think the thing that if you've just seen the, I always call it like it's the best thing on the internet, but uh, Claudio's POV course previews that he's had been putting out forever, uh, those are my favorite thing on the internet. Then you hear this crazy eccentric guy like doing the commentary for all these races, and that's a lot of fun too. Um, I think the part about Claudio that many of us don't maybe get to see or get to know quite as much is um, there is a, a whole lot of thoughtfulness uh, behind the screaming and the yelling and the uh, excited, you know, weird laughter. So on that note, Claudio, please come up. Literally, Claudio came right from Snowshoe, West Virginia, where the World uh, World Cup finals were wrapping up. Have you guys seen this yet? And if you haven't, no, there's spoiler alerts coming, and it's your fault if you haven't watched this yet. 
yeah, you haven't yet, uh, Eric. Eric Friesen, everybody. Uh, perpetual disappointment. Um, just, he's, 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 we're, we're friends. Sorry, Eric, but we're going to do this. Um, we've been debating this. It's been talked about. We may have just witnessed the best downhill race ever. As a historian, Claudio, what's your take on this? Well, one of the best for sure, um, but we tend to forget what, what happened the year before and the year before. So, um, I, you know, Rob and I have been saying at the end of every season pretty much, well, that was the best season ever. And um, then we say it again next year. So, you know, it's just our sport that's super exciting and uh, the riders that make it so special every year and but yeah with the two Frenchies battling it out to the last race and everyone thought that whoever of those two wins will take the overall title but then it was actually up to another person take uh, making that decision with Danny Hart if he was in between the two then uh, Amory would have one taken the overall but since he was in front of the two then Loic took the overall, even though he only got fourth in this race, made, made it really confusing for ourselves at the, at the commentary. So the, the producers were constantly yelling us, um, this guy's going to take the overall. And I was like, no, that, that's not right. It's the other one. And then, like, yeah, tell it, say it now on TV. Say it. And I'm like, no, you got it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, finally, we got it out right. Yeah. I we were saying earlier, I don't remember the last like sporting event I watched like on a couch where I was visibly shaking like over the course of those last two runs. And uh, um, I, I don't know that it's possible to write a more dramatic ending to that race. Eric, you really should probably check it out. Um, but uh, I wanted to ask you too, just one of the things we talked about uh, earlier was pretty remarkable. I think just the battle all year between Loic and Omri, um, not just the battle, but this display of like unbelievable competition and sportsmanship. I, I'm kind of hard pressed to remember such an example of that, you know, and I think there was a quote where after all of this and um, Omri said of Loic, uh, he's my best friend and my best enemy. And I, I thought that was pretty well put. Um, and I don't know, do you think that's okay, you know, given your years of witnessing all of this racing, do you view this as a pretty special or unique relationship and battle between these two? Yes, 100%. And it's something that was really, really surprising for me to see. It's really hard to keep a close friendship up when you have to battle it out for the for the world title. So usually you then see things going slightly sideways with a friendship, but these two just keep it up and uh, they hang out together when it, when they're not on the bikes. Um, Loic actually said it in an interview just before the race that it kind of sucks that they're not able to ride together anymore because it, this would be kind of a conflict of interest. Usually they would train on the track together at the World Cup, but now that would mean that one shows the other one the lines, um, which obviously now they can't because they need to try to win. Um, so you're not actually going to help your friend 
to try to beat you. But but you know, as soon as they're off the bike, they're spending time together. So it's it's really really cool to see, and I wouldn't know where else you would see that. Yeah. Um, we're gonna be good and leave it at that. Like I said, we covered this territory. Uh, I think this Thursday, um, you can get Claudio's larger, longer breakdown of this race and past seasons and try to provide some context of this. And turns out he's pretty good talking about this stuff. So it was a good conversation. Um, but let's talk about you, Claudio. Well, to begin with, you grew up in Switzerland, I hear. And yes, that was the times when I still spent time at home. Yeah, yeah the, the times have changed. We're going to get to that too. Um, uh, you started racing bikes when you were how old? Well, I played hockey, ice hockey, and then my parents didn't want to drive me to to training every day, and they bought me a mountain bike so I could get to training <laughs> myself. But then uh, I found out that mountain biking was at least as much fun as playing hockey. And uh, so that was like in 93 years or so, at, a, at the age of, well, I'm 25 now. How does it work? That's not, that's not true, Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> you started on a pro career, but that actually started in cross country, right? And you made this move from cross country to DH? Yeah, actually, I was uh, riding cyclocross, road, track, and cross country, all of it, until on a training ride, I found a BMX track. And uh, I've never seen one before. That was like in 95. And then uh, I did a couple of laps there and got so hooked that I would spend my whole winter on that BMX track, which obviously for cross country racing wasn't wasn't that good. So in next year, in next year's season, I would be quite slow on all the uphills, but really really fast on the downhills. So uh, I tried out the downhill race and was hooked immediately. And so from '96 on, I was just racing downhill. This decision to compete and race this meant you had to forego university. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much after. So this is the first time Claudio's ever been on a university campus. So we should <laughs> we should welcome him. Um, we'll get to the part about the all the learning you've done outside of school. But uh, I'm curious about this and, and frankly, whether this was a difficult decision at the time. No, no, that's the thing. Like with everything we're doing, um, either either personally or with the company, it was hardly ever a, a plan that I thought, okay, we need to be there in five years. It was more about when an opportunity opened up, take it. Um, so there was never a real decision, am I, am I going to be a pro mountain biker or not? It was just clear that if I get the opportunity, then yes, 100%, all in. And um, that's the same with when I had the opportunity to open up my own World Cup racing team, um, then you just go all in. If you really want that, if you feel that this is something you want to do, and if some open, uh, if some door opens for you, then go at it flat out. Same with uh, with Vela Solutions. Um, and yeah, as to go back to the question of becoming a down, pro downhiller, I mean that was never something I, I'd really have to think about. If you get the chance, then hundred percent. So I think what you were saying about 
the fact that many of your decisions, it wasn't like you had this blueprint that you stuck to. I think this is one of the most interesting, interesting things about you is a lot of these moves don't necessarily make a lot of sense to me on paper. And I don't really know how you got involved in some of this stuff. Um, so let's go in, maybe this is slightly out of order. How did this announcing thing happen for you? And was that before you'd started Velo Solutions or was Velo Solutions already underway when you started doing World Cup commentary? The announcing, again, that was not something I was ever looking for. Um, I've had done the, those GoPro course previews already for two years. And then uh, Red Bull asked me, hey, why don't you do a, why don't you do a tryout? as a co-commentator together with Rob. Uh, back then there was someone else doing it, but he was going to uh, EWS at that weekend. So they needed a replacement and they just put me in there. And for some reason they liked it and they kept me in there. For some reason, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get it. But uh, another thing I wanna to talk to you, this is bumping way out of order, I'm afraid, but you also had a fairly high profile injury. Uh, <laughs> I think it was last April. I forgot. You've got, yeah, well, we should get that checked out. Um, but I, I'd be curious to hear a lot of people in this room have probably experienced their fair share of injuries, but I'm curious, um, this was a big one and a significant uh, event for you. Um, I'm curious to hear one, how you are feeling and doing these days, and two, if that injury somehow altered your perspective or kind of, I don't know, um, made you just look differently about either racing in general or um, any other perspective changes like that? Well, first question, I'm back to 100% and I'm actually bugging Red Bull every weekend to let me ride again to do a course preview, but that's not going to happen anymore. They're too scared that I might crash, on, might crash again. And then it's not only bad for me, but also bad for them because people are going to say that uh, they they pushed me to do it again and they don't want to take that risk. Uh, second of all, a head injury is something else than a broken bone and yeah. it is really scary because it just takes so much longer to to be back to 100% and it freaks you out when you when you think that, why did I forget that? Is that because I crashed or just because I didn't sleep well or whatever. And it, it constantly makes you think and that thinking makes it, makes it worse. Um, so something I had to learn, like really to, to use your head to, to get in control, get back into control and uh, not let those, those fears um, direct you. I think a lot of people know that Claudio is the founder of this company, Velo Solutions. Um, I suspect maybe not quite as many people know is just how big this company is getting and how many projects are happening under the Velo Solutions name. Talk to me a little bit about if somebody, you meet somebody and they say, what is this company? What do you do? Your answer is? Originally, uh, just a normal trail building company. But then once again, we were in the spot, in the right spot when the whole pump track hype came up and uh, we had the, the opportunity to pave one, 
like with asphalt for the first time in, in the world. And that became such a huge success immediately that it just went global worldwide. And uh, so we were able to refine the techniques of laying asphalt on turns and, and the shapes and everything. And uh, so we're constantly pushing the limits further. We've by now built 200 pump asphalt pump tracks around the world and 60 of them just this year. When you say around the world, you're not joking. Do uh, you want to name several of the countries that we're talking about? Well, there's or name. every continent is in there. Um, you know, there's little countries in Africa called Lesotho. We were in India, Thailand, um, Philippines, Japan, South America, North America, just everywhere, yeah. What is the unifying factor that you're seeing or the feedback you're getting from these different communities? Well, there's, when we build a pump track in a town, no matter where in the world, it always has the exact same effect. It's plenty of kids, smiling faces. Um, they just love it. And, you know, one of the big trigger points for me to really go deeper into it and to push it harder and even sometimes like skip a ride or skip playing the guitar just to do more is uh, one project we had in Thailand where a quite wealthy or actually super rich guy wanted a pump track there in his town. And I wasn't thinking much when, he, when we had that uh, opportunity to go to Thailand and build a pump track. Uh, but then when we were there working, I saw that all around the pump track, it was just shanties, just families living there with nothing, um, really nothing. And I was wondering like, wow, how, how does that make sense to build a pump track for a rich guy in front of all these little huts where the kids don't even have shoes? Um, feels kind of weird. But then at the moment where we poured out the last wheelbarrow of, of asphalt and laid it, all of these kids came out. And whether they had a proper bike or just some trash with a couple of wheels on it, they all came out bare feet and rode and rode and rode and wouldn't stop riding for days. And that's where I knew, okay, well, our pump tracks have the exact same effect, whether that is in New York City or it's somewhere in India or somewhere in a developing country. And it doesn't only bring people into cycling or in, into sports in general, but it brings people together. And that's people from all sorts of backgrounds. So there in Thailand, it's those kids living in literally cardboard boxes, mixing with the rich people, and they're there using the pump track all at the same time. And for me, that was a trigger that I knew, okay, well, this we need to push as far as we can push it. Um, even if it means for me no more sleep, and even if it means for me hardly any riding. Yeah, and I think this is the thing. I mean, you, you mentioned already, it's 60 
projects for 2019, 60 tracks being built in 2019 all around the world. So as the, the track building and the, the pump track building at Velo has ramped up so much, has your vision about what you're doing and why you're doing, um, has that changed? Are you seeing new things now, kind of new opportunities or new interesting inroads? Um, everything, right, we, we talk about this quite a bit, like, and you've already said it here, like everything is always kind of an evolving, interesting opportunity. And part of it, I think, that is uh, your life is a clear example of is staying open to uh, potential opportunities. What are you seeing now, given that you're doing all these projects all around the world? What's, what looks different now than it did a few years ago, say? Well, it, it just came to bigger scale. I'm now suddenly talking to, to country leaders and, and it's like people that I would not, not ever have imagined to meet. And I can now, I can really talk to some country president and, and say, let's change, let's change your country. Like, let's put a pump track at every school of your country. And while two or three years ago, this would have been completely out there and just like insane. While when I say it now, I really mean it. And um, because uh, I know what a pump track changes in a community um, and I know what it changes in a whole country. And so when I, when I get to meet people in, the, in, in a country government, I really mean it when I, when I say, let's, let's build a pump track at each school you have. And um, crazy thing that it is nowadays they actually listen and consider it. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about Pump for Peace. What is that and how did that come about? Well, it came exactly because of that trigger um, moment in Thailand when we saw what a pump track does in a, let's say, underprivileged community. We thought we need to, we need to try to make that happen more often. Even though our goal was ever, always was to make it happen. You know, whether we're in a poor country or in a rich country, we always tried to make it happen. But with Pump for Peace, we, we just gave that idea a name. And so the idea is to bring pump tracks into um, disadvantaged areas in the world. Um, and whether that is, maybe we put some money aside from each project around the world. And once we have enough, we then go again to to a developing country and build one there, or we come up with all different, all kinds of ideas to raise money. And, and, and again, once we have enough, we go and build one. So those different ideas could be playing concerts or last year when I quit my World Cup team, we had a big load of bike parts um, that we then just sold and uh, all of the proceeds went into Pump for Peace. Or then uh, we had Yolanda Neff spike on auction to raise money for Pump for Peace. So whatever we could think of, 
to raise money for for it and um there is already like 10 different countries waiting for the next pump for peace track so once we have raised enough money for it we'll go and build it so 10 are already kind of in the queue yeah yeah wow um I, i'm curious to ask like we talked a little bit about velo we've talked about pump for peace are there things like the primary takeaways or things you've learned from both of these projects? Who? Where should I start? Well, you know, you can always make it happen. It's just uh, you have to be open-minded and other countries work differently. You won't get, you can plan as long as you want, but it's not going to go according to the plan. So no matter how much you try to make sure that everything is in place when when you go to china next week but you can almost be sure that when you arrive there nothing is in place and you still have to deal with it and you still want to finish that pump track in time i'm in my case i don't i don't put too much effort into detailed planning because i know that this is a waste of time um because it's going to be different anyway I do tell them what what we need over there, but um, the actual fight starts when we're there, when we then actually want it. And um, that in every country is different, you know? Like, and funny enough, it's not necessarily the developing countries where you struggle the most. So for example, in Lesotho, which is a tiny little country in South Africa, um, we had some of the best asphalt in the world. Um, while in the US, we really, really struggle getting the good asphalt um, because a construction company in the US is so busy building roads and, or the asphalt plants are delivering thousands of tons every day. Um, so they're not really keen on making us a special mix of asphalt to lay our lay on our pump tracks we, we want it a bit different than on the road you know we want it finer we want it to stick up in the in the turns so for them they cannot just push a knob they actually have to push three knobs um, and for many people this is asking for too much um, while then in africa they're like yeah business so let's do it right um, so it, it's really really different in in every country. I'm curious whether, given your travels, given your work in these different communities, if you've seen anything in particular or kind of unifying in these places about bike culture? Well, basically, it goes along with what we said at the beginning with Loic and Amory being good friends when they're off the bike. And the mountain bike community is something special. Um, when you compare it to any other sports. And so a lot of people that come in that have never seen mountain biking before and they come to the World Cup, for example, um, the production company that does the whole TV show currently at the Mountain Bike World Cup for Red Bull TV, they are used to do all kinds of other shows in all kinds of other sports. And they came on, into mountain biking fresh this year They've never seen mountain biking before. And they're like, wow, 
this is different. Why are all these people friends? They're competitors. Why are they acting so friendly? Why are they partying together after the race? So this is not something that they're used to from, from other sports. And I think that you will find all across the globe. We've talked about this work that you're doing and with Velo Solution, the uh, intense you have with Pump for Peace, but talk a bit about some of the concerns or some of the hopes that you have in terms of when it comes to these issues of sustainability and doing better. Well, that, that is probably a question that concerns everyone as soon as you want to do something more than just regional, as soon as you go further, as soon as you have to take an airplane. So already when just racing World Cups, um, you need to take an airplane, you need, then uh, you are using several sets of tires per week that then are gonna go wasted. You're not, either, you're not even allowed to give them to fans because you might be riding prot prototypes and those prototypes should not be given to anyone. So racing is not something sustainable. Um, and if you come into racing as a, as a person that has some thoughts and has some consideration about sustainability, then this is something you somehow have to cope with. Um, which is probably why sustainability is not a topic that's being discussed at the World Cup at all. Even though I do believe that a lot of riders have awareness. Um, but for me, it goes even further. I mean, the lifestyle that I have right now was like going three times around the world per, per month or sometimes even per week. <laughs> Um, you couldn't call that sustainable at all. And yeah, I mean, obviously you, you always find a way how to make it sound good. But um, I do believe that what we, what we achieve with those pump tracks everywhere in the world, we get so many people onto bikes, we get so, much, so many lives changed and people who would then use bikes to commute instead of using their cars. Um, or they could do sport right in their neighborhood and not have to take the car somewhere to do sports somewhere else. Um, so the effect of what we achieve with those pump tracks um, is a lot bigger than my impact I have with flying around the world. Uh, but as I told you earlier today, this is not, I'm not saying I'm 100% right. Um, this is something everyone has to find out for himself, what's, what's the right thing? And I'm trying to, I'm trying to, you know, uh, limit my carbon footprint as much as I can despite all the, the flying. So that's why I'm vegan. That's why I'm very, very conscious about um, 
waste and about using plastic and about using my car in Switzerland, for example, I don't use a car. I just travel by train as far as possible. Um, but then there's no electric airplanes yet. So I, I cannot really say I'm, I'm a, doing a really good job on the carbon footprint with flying around the world, but you know, like just be considered is that the right word? When when you get up in the morning and think, um, do I really need to switch on every single light at the house or maybe just the one where I'm actually at? And and from there all, all day long. So I'll try to keep it at low impact where I can, knowing that some things I do in life are not low impact at all. Mm-hmm. While also as you've already said, keeping in mind that some of the things might not be low impact, but they are significant of significant impact and making a real impact on communities. And I think the thing that I've found really interesting is um, how willing you are to examine the work at Vela Solution and these other projects you're involved with and just keep asking the question, do I still think this is a net positive? Do I still think this is a beneficial thing to be doing? And uh, I think it's a very difficult line to hold, right? Like like a truly honest evaluation. We talked about this reevaluation of values today, where we're just willing to be honest with ourselves and ask, like, does this still feel like the right thing for me to be doing at the time? And that certainly seems to be something that I think is true of you at this point. And there will be impacts, some of them beneficial, some of them um, less, you know, less beneficial in terms of carbon emissions and the like. But um, I guess I respect that about you. Um, this isn't stuff that I think we hear much in, in maybe bike culture or in bike media, certainly. And I think that um, it's cool and valuable to have you in your position uh, trying to be open to this and honest about this, where are we, does this still seem like the right thing to be doing, considering all of the impacts. I want to let you guys ask some questions. Um, I think I've said enough. So, back by popular demand, um, we're going to bring back our little uh, Western versus Marcel Proust segment, as we like to call it. And if some of you remember from last year, the way this goes is, you have some questions now, we'd like to open it up. If you do not have questions, I'm gonna start asking Claudio some of these questions by the famous French novelist, Marcel Proust, and you'll be in for it. So you better hope they have some questions for you. <laughs> Did you enjoy riding with uh, Nadine Castle? Oh yeah. Yeah, riding with Danny was good fun. He has a completely different style. <laughs> it, I mean, not only because of his tricks, but uh, you know, he comes from trials and not from trail riding. So any mountain biker that grows up just trail riding would naturally find a line around the rocks, right? Around the biggest obstacles, while he just rides straight. There is no obstacle. And uh, riding behind him opened my eyes a bit because, yeah, why, why are we actually naturally looking for lines around the rocks when you, when you can actually just go straight over them? <laughs> Uh, it's a question from an MBA student calling in from Eagle and talking about sustainability. She's wondering 
what are plans to, um, you know, for upkeep in the tracks, or the pump tracks throughout the world? Well, you know, the first asphalt pump track was built in 2012. Uh, that one has no damage so far, so we cannot really say we have a whole lot of experience with it. So the first one has been built seven years ago, um, no issues with that one, but you know, it's similar to any road. So if there is a crack in a road, you go fill that crack. It's not a, not a big issue. Um, so we're quite prepared for that, but we didn't really have to go in yet. Um, obviously we did had a couple of repairs, but nothing that was completely deteriorating. Um, and then if one has to be taken down completely, it's similar to a road. You can uh, recycle the asphalt. And so do you work with host countries or host towns to do minor repairs, or do you all need to go in and fix the little cracks or the bigger chips? No, I, we wouldn't have to travel around the world to go, to go fix them. Um, I mean, we do have teams by now in 20 different countries. So the goal is not that one team has to constantly travel around the world to, to build a pump track. We are, we have two teams in the US already, we have one in Canada, and it would be nonsense if my Swiss team would be traveling to, to every country in the world um, to build a pump track. So that, that is kind of our local approach and also trying what I said before with cutting down uh, all the, the flying. Yeah, approximately how much does it cost to build a Bell Solutions contract? In the US, that is around $25 per square feet, square foot. And tracks are typically range from? 10, well, a good size track is 10,000 uh, square feet. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest one you have to build? Uh, we probably just finished the big one, biggest one in China right now, which is around 50,000 square feet. Are you, so is your team overseeing or do, doing or overseeing construction everywhere? Tom was asking, are you hiring local contractors or is your team coming in to do the work itself? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, we, when we do the planning of a pump track, we show to the city what parts can be done by themselves. Um, we have a whole list of uh, materials, machinery, helpers, um, everything that they can take care of. Um, but then there is a certain amount of work that you just need to be experienced and that's where we're coming in. But then, you know, when after laying the asphalt, for example, when um, the turf needs to be done, or the whole landscaping. You don't you don't really necessarily need well solutions to to do landscaping. We can do that if the client wants us to take it take care of it all. But a lot of clients would say no. We're we're giving this to a local landscaper. But clearly, the shaping and the laying laying the asphalt is something that only we can do. So that part. Um, we'll do it. Everything else is negotiable. Jack, right here. What's your favorite type of bike? <laughs> downhill bike. Favorite downhill bike is it? Oh, I like to spe specialize a lot. 
<laughs> so you used to be a pro downhill racer. Do you enjoy being on the other side of the tape more, like from the perspective where you're at now, kind of providing these things that you're providing for the mountain bike community more than you enjoyed racing, or? I'd say there's a time for everything in your life. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, clearly, there is no question the excitement is the biggest when you're in between the tape. And nothing beats that, but it also comes with a whole lot of pressure and dealing with, I mean, there's those hours before the race start, I don't think anyone in the whole world in, enjoys those hours because you're so nervous and like as soon as you're then on track and racing, it's good. But um, the time before the race, it, it's brutal. Um, I obviously I, I loved being a racer, but I love it now where I am too, and I'm I have no. I'm not at the World Cup thinking, oh, how much better would it be, to be a racer for me? Everything is good as it is. So the UCI had their first e-bike race this year. What are your thoughts on a possible future of e-bike racing? Well, I don't know about racing them because it seems kind of funky when you want to sprint and then it stops you at 25 miles an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so at the women's race where uh, the Swiss girl won, but the girl behind her actually wanted to go catch her and she was, I don't know, 20 meters, uh, that's 60 feet behind her. And they were both sprinting, but you know, you only get the support to 25 miles an hour and then they were like both at the same at the same pace <laughs> so i think um maybe the rules on e-bike racing need to be still developed uh, but i mean these bikes are a good amount of fun no question about that do you read in bike comments <laughs> as a pro biker i've always wondered if, if you guys actually like go through and scroll and read what people say online? Um, no, I try to avoid it. Some, <laughs> sometimes I get sucked into it and then you're like, but yeah, and I try not to read them. Most of the writers avoid reading the pink bike comments. I know this is kind of a hard question, but what sort of advice would you give to someone who's interested? My favorite course? Yeah. Clearly Mount St. Anne. Yeah, always been and probably always will be. Although I must say Snowshoe was really cool with those big jumps up top. I want to sneak one question in from Proust because I'm curious about this answer, actually. So um, from Marcel, uh, who are your heroes in real life? Dave Grohl. Oh, no. <laughs> and Eddie Fedder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah. These guys rock. These guys rock. Claudio's heroes rock. Don't forget it. Um, we welcome you here to your first time to Crested Butte. Um, I don't think this is going to be your last time. And we're already working on the adoption papers, so don't worry about that. But, <laughs> but our plan to adopt Claudio officially and make this uh, his home in the United States is, is underway. So 
uh, we're working. Are you then going to be my father? Maybe. I think, I think maybe I will be. Yeah, who's your daddy, Claudio? Um, anyway, um, thank you. Um, October 8th, we'll do this again with Dory Trimble, and uh, I can't wait for that one. Um, but for now, um, let's thank Claudio, and uh, this has really been a pleasure to have you here, and so thank you for, for coming. Thank you. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to everyone who came out to Western and to those who asked such good questions. Thanks also to Claudio for this and all the other excellent conversations we had while he was out in Crested Butte for the week. That was a lot of fun, a lot of great talks, and some good bike riding too. And next month for the Blister Speaker Series, our guest will be Dory Trimble, the director of the Honold Foundation. Yes, that's the Alex Honold Foundation. And that event will be on October 8th at 7 p.m. at Western. So be sure to come join us. I know that is going to be another great evening. Thanks, everybody. Please take good care out there. And we will talk to you again next week.